Welcome to the Corona of Thorns podcast. I'm Father Peter Swans, and today is the 25th Sunday in Ordinary Time. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. O God, who founded all the commands of your sacred law upon love of you and of our neighbour, grant that by keeping your precepts, we may merit to attain eternal life. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God, for ever and ever. Amen. A reading from the prophet Amos. Listen to this, you who trample on the needy and try to suppress the poor people of the country. You who say, when will the new moon be over so we can sell our corn and Sabbath so we can market our wheat? Then by lowering the bushel, raising the shekel, swindling and tampering with the scales, we can buy up the poor for money, the needy for a pair of sandals, and get a price even for the sweeping of the wheat. The Lord swears it by the pride of Jacob. Never will I forget a single thing you have done. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Praise the Lord who lifts up the poor. Praise the Lord who lifts up the poor. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. May the name of the Lord be blessed, both now and forevermore. Praise the Lord who lifts up the poor. High above all nations is the Lord, above the heavens his glory. Who is like the Lord our God, who has risen on high to his throne, yet stoops from his heights to look down, to look down upon the heaven and earth. Praise the Lord who lifts up the poor. From the dust he lifts up the lowly, from the dung heap he raises the poor, to set him in the company of princes, yes, with the princes of his people. Praise the Lord who lifts up the poor. A reading from the first letter of St. Paul to Timothy. My advice is that, first of all, there should be prayers offered for everyone, petitions, intercessions and thanksgiving, and especially for kings and others in authority, so that we may be able to live religious and reverent lives in peace and quiet. To do this right and will please God our Saviour, he wants everyone to be saved and reach full knowledge of the truth. For there is only one God, and there is only one mediator between God and humankind, himself a man, Jesus Christ, who sacrificed himself as a ransom for them all. He is the evidence of this sent at the appointed time, and I have been named a herald and apostle of it, and I am telling the truth and no lie, a teacher of the faith and the truth to the pagans. In every place, then, I want the men to lift their hands up reverently in prayer with no anger or argument. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Alleluia, alleluia. 
Jesus Christ was rich, but he became poor, to make you rich out of his poverty. Alleluia. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus said to his disciples, There was a rich man, and he had a steward denounced to him for being wasteful with his property. He called for the man and said, What is this I hear about you? Draw me up an account of your stewardship, because you are not to be my steward any longer. Then the steward said to himself, Now that my master is taking the stewardship from me, what am I to do? Dig? I'm not strong enough. Go begging? I should be too ashamed. Ah, I know what I will do to make sure that when I am dismissed from office, there will be some to welcome me into their homes. Then he called his master's debtors one by one. To the first he said, How much do you owe my master? One hundred measures of oil was the reply. The steward said, Here, take your bond, sit down straight away, and write fifty. To another he said, And you, sir, how much do you owe? One hundred measures of wheat, was the reply. The steward said, Here, take your bond, and write eighty. The master praised the dishonest steward for his astuteness. For the children of this world are more astute in dealing with their own kind than are the children of light. And so I tell you this. Use money, tainted as it is, to win you friends. And thus, make sure that when it fails you, they will welcome you into the tents of eternity. The man who can be trusted in little things can be trusted in great. The man who is dishonest in little things will be dishonest in great. If you then cannot be trusted with money, that tainted thing, who will trust you with genuine riches? And if you cannot be trusted with what is not yours, who will give you what is your very own? No servant can be the slave of two masters. He will either hate the first and love the second, or treat the first with respect and the second with scorn. You cannot be the slave of both God and of money. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe this is the most difficult parable of Jesus to understand. The praise that the Lord heaps upon the unjust steward is is really quite surprising. We would expect Jesus to chastise the actions of such a devious servant. And yet there's something that Jesus admires about him. There's some lesson to be learnt in his dishonesty. Now, I think the difficulty for us is trying to get a firm grasp of what exactly it is that Jesus admires about this guy. I mean, surely it's not his ability to lie and cheat that Jesus points to as an example to follow. Well, when we look at the first reading today, uh, we see a pretty strong articulation of the biblical view of fraud and cheating Have a listen to this. By lowering the bushel, raising the shekel, by swindling and tampering with the scales, we can buy up the poor for money and the needy for a pair of sandals and get a price even for the sweepings of the wheat. 
they're all expressions of the way that Israel can be corrupt, right? Well, then you get this. The Lord swears it by the pride of Jacob. Never will I forget a single thing you have done. Oof. Doesn't get clearer than that. Be honest in your dealings, because God will not tolerate the exploitation of the poor, and he will have his just reckoning. But when we look toward the gospel, the Lord Jesus constructs a parable where a rich man denounces his servant for being wasteful and then gives him the sack. I suppose the mistake that the rich man makes is that he doesn't march him straight out of his household, but gives him a night to play with the books. The servant sees the danger and desperation of the situation he's in. He's about to lose his job, and he figures... If he's able to implicate his master's debtors in his crime, then he'll be able to blackmail them for money later. So you can just imagine what's running through the steward's head. If this person owes 100 measures of oil and the sum is written down to 50, then I'll be able to blackmail this person for some of the discount. Otherwise, I'll just go to my former master, point out the accounting mistake, right? And you'll be back to full price, mate. Take the discount and give me a cut and we'll all be better off. Sneaky. But smart. (laughs) Now, the servant in the parable doesn't get away with his dirty deed. The master finds out about the scheme. But where you'd expect the rich man to blow his stack, the master praises the dishonest steward for his astuteness. What makes this dishonest steward so astute, though, is the fact that he was able to recognise from the very moment that he was dismissed from the service of the master that he was, in fact, in great danger. Now, I suppose we can all relate to the great threat that comes from being out of work. But I suppose in the time of Christ, if you didn't work, you didn't eat. There was no government social network to pick up the slack. You had to depend on your family and your friends. And so this servant is in great peril, and he knew it. And the astuteness which the master praises is evident in the fact that in the face of the threat to his livelihood, the steward jumps into action. Now, bear in mind, the action is immoral, but the astuteness of the servant is to recognise the threat and to be quick to neutralise the threat. So what does Jesus make of all of this? I mean, after all, he's the one who invented the story and he's telling it, right? (laughs) He says this, The children of this world are more astute in dealing with their own kind than are the children of light. There's a certain astuteness that the children of this world have that the children of light lack. When the welfare and well-being of the children of this world is threatened, what happens? They spring into action. They're not content to adopt a wait-and-see policy. No, they take decisive action. The astuteness of the children of this world is that they have the ability to diagnose a threat and deal with it. Maybe not in a morally licit way, but gee, they're onto it. The steward didn't kind of rock from one foot to another, umming and ahhing about whether he should do something. So how ought the children of light behave? In the face of this parable. 
Well, the principal concern of the children of light is the kingdom of light. The principal interest of the children of light is their communion with God. But here's the observation that Jesus makes. The children of light aren't astute in recognising and neutralising threats to the spiritual life. The children of this world are much more astute in recognising and neutralising threats to their earthly life. So we can see the kind of lengths that this unjust steward will go to in order to secure his well-being. But what lengths are the children of light willing to go to in order to protect their spiritual life? The skill of the steward is to know that when he's in a perilous situation and he's not content to remain in danger. And I think this might be what Jesus is putting forward as the example to follow. We're to extend the model of the astuteness of the children of this world to a kind of spiritual astuteness for the children of light. We should be clever enough to recognise the spiritually dangerous conditions and we should be clever enough to employ those spiritual means to make sure that the threat is neutralised. The children of this world are more astute in dealing with their own kind than are the children of light. It almost sounds like a lament. If only my spiritual children would take their spiritual welfare as seriously as a worldly person sees and acts on the threats to their worldly welfare. I don't know, I suppose if we're brutally honest with ourselves, perhaps we might find that we're not too urgent in our attitudes to the spiritual life. We might not feel any terrific peril concerning our relationship with our Heavenly Father. I do pretty well, better than most. Surely God can content himself with that. Well, in this respect, I think the spiritual life can be a little bit like fitness. You can't just kind of keep it static. It'll disappear if you don't do anything about it. And who knows? Maybe that kind of attitude is actually really just a a shrinking attitude. It can so easily lead to a tacit approval of sin. And, you know, how easily we can end up in a secretive pattern of sinfulness that leads us further away from God and snuffs out our spiritual sensitivity. It's easy to lose a taste for the spiritual life. And so easily we can make a truce with those little habits that imperil our spiritual life. The hours of lazy TV watching that comes at the expense of prayer and meditation, or at the expense of quality time with spouse and family. I can be content to let my interior addictions to the internet coexist with my exterior profession of faith. How easy it is to stop struggling to curb my tongue and simply resign myself to the fact that I gossip and it's just part of who I am. Sinful humanity has a real art for compartmentalising different aspects of life so that hypocrisy doesn't really become too much of a problem, especially even to us. (laughs) And the contradictions within our lives don't tend to challenge each other. It all just kind of coexists in this blind, unhappy state. The astuteness of the unjust steward is that he's able to recognise the threat that is made to his life and livelihood, 
and he springs into action to make sure that he's not brought undone by the threat. And the master's curiously impressed by his efforts. But this is what we need to imitate as children of light. We first need to recognise that it may be that our spiritual lives are actually in danger. And that this is, in fact, an urgent situation. You know what? There's actually no time to waste. Those bad habits to which I've resigned myself are actually taking me away from God. Now, we know that none of us is perfect. But have we actually signed a truce within ourselves that gives permission for evil to exist within us unimpeded? That we've just stopped setting up obstacles to these sinful patterns? Well, if so, then I need a bit of astuteness. I need to be able to recognise this within myself and take action. My laziness needs to be enlivened by diligence. My greed needs to be moderated by generosity. My anger needs to be tempered by gentleness. My lust needs to be transformed into love that seeks the good of others more than the gratification of myself. My envy needs to turn into admiration. My overindulgence needs to turn into temperance. If sin really starts to bite so that it becomes a habit against which I no longer struggle, then you can bet personal prayer and meditation is probably been left behind. And the savouring joy of prayer? That's a distant memory. The astute child of light is the one who is forever making sure that there's no threat that would cause him or her to love God with anything less than heart, mind and strength. And his neighbour is himself. The astute child of light isn't perfect. But the astute child of light doesn't give up the fight. Every danger is met with smart and bold action. Thanks for praying with us, and may God bless you abundantly, so that this day may give glory to God the Father.